Welcome to Behavior Babes Podcast, presented by me, Dr. Amanda Kelly. Aloha. Joining us today, we have Dyson Chi. Hi, Dyson. Are you there? Yep. I'm here, Amanda. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very, very excited to talk to you about your initiatives and your work. But before we jump into all of that, can you do an introduction and, and talk to us a little bit about yourself for our listeners? Yeah, sure. So my name is Dyson Chi. I'm, hey, everyone. Um, I grew up on Oahu, um, beach boy pretty much all my life, ever since I can remember. I've been going out to the beach, snorkeling, um, bodyboarding, a little more recently scuba diving. And really what that kind of ocean connection has done for me is to allow me to become really invested in it, right? It's like when you grew up in your house, you love your home, you come back to it every day, and it's like, ah, I'm home, I can relax. And it was the same thing with the ocean for me. It was like I'd go to the beach every day, and at the beach it felt like it was a place that I can relax, you know, have fun, chill. And so because of that, I really love the ocean. And when I found out that there are certain issues that afflict the ocean, like plastic pollution, I really started to get, you know, involved. What can I do to protect this place that I love, that I grew up in? Yeah, and so because of that, it's recently I've become um, more highly involved in some specific actions that help to protect our oceans. Like, for example, some of you may have heard of this plastics ban that's gone through the Honolulu City Council. And that's something that I helped to lead on the youth movement to go behind and help push. So, Dyson, you have done a lot, I think, in a relatively short amount of time. Um, and I'm, I heard you speak uh, this Sunday about the, the urgency, right, and how there really isn't a lot of time <laughs> to be waiting to, to make changes. When you talk about um, the ocean and the love for the ocean, you really mention your, your motivation. How did you get started? Like, how did this become such an initiative for you? And how did you become known as a, a, a climate activist, you know, here locally on Oahu? Hmm. Well, ultimately, you can say that it started with um, me growing up around the ocean. But if we're trying to talk about, like, a really specific trail that I kind of followed to get to this point, I would say a lot of it started out, or the very, very first um, kind of, like, movement that I got involved with was the Papahanaumokuakea expansion movement, the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands, when there was the push to try to get them to become expanded, to become the largest um, um, mar- what is it, uh, marine sanctuary um, by back then President Obama. I remember there was a public hearing um, in town, or not in town, um, on Oahu, and I went to go attend it. I was like, ooh, like, I would love to see this place become expanded. Uh, obviously, we're at a lack of protected waters for a variety of species. And it was at that that I gave my first, you know, kind of testimony. Um, and that kind of really laid the groundwork for what I would do ahead, which is supporting legislation 
I never realized it at the time, but now that I look back on it, that was really the very first movement that kind of got me started along this path. And how old were you at that time? Oh boy, um, uh, around 13 or 14. I think a lot of people are probably surprised when they hear you say that um, <laughs> because, you know, for some students, it's, I remember, Dyson, I was telling your mom the story actually this weekend that when I was a young child, my parents bought me a book, and it was like 100 Things You Can Do Today to Save the Earth Tomorrow or something like something like that. Mm. And um, my parents always kind of chuckle and comment because uh, they're like, oh, we always saw you so interested in sustainability. And I would be, you know, shutting off the water when they were brushing their teeth or turning off the light <laughs> when they would walk out of a room or yelling at them when they would leave the fridge open. And I was this little sort of uh, regulator of energy (laughs) in our household. And your mom said something really, I thought, important to me. She said, you know, I think there are some people who just um, have a particular way of feeling or seeing the world, and it becomes a priority for them faster than others. And um, I kind of think about, you know, you're so excited, you're so motivated, um, that's how I see you. And you've been doing this now f- for at least four four or five years. I mean, that's not um, that's that's not a small feat. That's a lot to stay involved and to stay on track. how do you how do you navigate or handle when people say things like it doesn't matter or it's just you're just one person or you're just a kid? I mean, have you heard those things? Surprisingly, hearing those things, um, I guess you could say the negative comments have been far outweighed by the positive ones, and that's really the ones that I try to lean to, because ultimately, like, yeah, I can say, like, you know, if you say that I'm just one person, well, ultimately, we're all one person, but collectively we're community, and that's proven to be true. We've seen movements that were started by literally, like, a handful of people, and then the community found out about it, and then you had hundreds of thousands or even millions of people, and all of a sudden they made an entire change happen. Um, but ultimately, for me, I, I try to look at the positive side of things, and it's been quite incredible to see how many people, um, even people who don't necessarily agree with my, say, political views um, or like, educational views, they still think that going out and making your voice heard is a positive thing. And so I think what that's done for me is to give me this kind of fuel, right? It's like a lot of times when you hear negative things over and over again, for example, I think our media um, if you read the newspaper or look at the news, it's like, oh, you know, people mass, mass shooting today, and we have more mass shootings than days in the year now. Or, oh, like, Australia is getting totally screwed over by wildfires being caused by climate change. And it's not really a lot of positive messaging, which I think is what helps to, you know, cause people to think negatively. Because they're being fed so much negative media, their mindset changes to that, and they think, well, you know, I've been seeing that we're screwed over and over again, so we really must be screwed, and there really must not be anything I can do. And so 
on the other hand, when people tell me like, oh, what you're doing is amazing, like, I think you, you should be an inspiration to everyone, to other kids who don't think they can do much, um, and to have people even tell me like, oh, I didn't know I could do this, but now I do know, has, yeah, been quite encouraging for everything that I get to do. I would conceptualize that as there are things that are naturally reinforcing about the process. And um, if we're all going to engage in a behavior, we better find something. There has to be something maintaining that behavior for us, you know, something that keeps us going. And one of the, I think, really um, interesting things about working on sustainability or um, things that help the earth and the ocean is that we actually don't need somebody to say good job. A lot of that uh, reward comes from feeling like you're making a difference and hearing the good jobs, you know, kind of can validate that, but seeing cleaner beaches, right. After the, the ban or the, the restrictions on cigarettes um, here on Oahu, I mean, the number of cigarette butts on beaches that I go to have significantly decreased in the last couple of years. And we don't always see change that quickly, but sometimes we really can. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's important that you've mentioned some of those, those motivators. And I love to hear you talk about the positive because negative exists um, pretty constantly. I think you're quite astute to talk about the messages that we're being, um, you know, fed or that are being delivered to us. And I've had people tell me, hey, look, I don't use a straw anymore or I, I brought my own utensils or we're trying to compost or – I rip out the plastic little pieces of envelopes when I get it in the mail now, like kind of what seems like really insignificant change. And they're like, I do that because I heard it or I saw someone or I, somebody believed I could. Mm -hmm. And um, like you said, very prolifically, you know, we're all one person, but collectively we're a community. I think that that really, really, really captures the impact of the masses. I have looked over and have known you for a, a while and I think we originally connected over some of the, the straw initiatives. Um, yep. can, you, can you talk about your interest in that and going to the schools and um, Project Ocean, right, which you founded? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, well, I'll start with Project Ocean since that ties into really everything that I do. So, like I said, um, going, just going a little back, I started out with the Papahanawoka Kids Mansion Movement, but I was on the tapering end of that. So really all I did was kind of jump in, and then it was done already. And so um, after that, I kind of worked in the science field, um, marine science, coral biology, um, and really it was just doing like what I think a lot of people would consider marine, marine science, marine biology. But then after a few years, I began to realize, like, oh, I, you know, there's this issue of plastic pollution in our oceans. I see it myself every time I go to the beach. I see it in the news. I read about it in articles. And there must be something I can do about this. Like, the science is awesome and it's fun, but what else is there I can, that I can do to tackle this issue? And that's really where the idea of Project Ocean came to be. And so Project Ocean was just my idea of a project that tackles the issue of plastic pollution through education and activism. And the reason why I chose education and activism, education because right, I'm a kid, a lot of the people that I'm going to be talking to at schools and whatnot are also going to be kids. And I felt that 
there's a bit of a disconnect when adults talk to kids. Um, as a kid, that's what I've personally felt whenever adults come into the classroom. There are a handful of adults who do very well at connecting kids. But still, it's like, oh, you do your such a full-time job. I'm still in school. I can't even vote. I can't even drive. Like, that, that kind of disconnect creates a bit of a barrier. And so understanding that, okay, I'm a kid right now, which means I have an advantage in that I have this automatic connection with other students, and I can relate to them much more easily. Um, I figured that would be really powerful when it came to education. And then on the other hand, activism, um, which is essentially getting people involved in civic engagement, trying to get policies passed. That one I chose in part because of where I started with the Papahanaumokuakea Kea movement. I decided, like, you know, that movement had a, definitely a lot of activism in it, and it succeeded. And then also, too, you can do as much education as you like, but ultimately there are going to be some people who either are apathetic, don't care, or want to continue to use single-use plastics because they're convenient. I've been told that multiple times by other people that they're much more convenient to use, so they're not going to change. And so when that comes around, the only way you can get change is through policy if they're very, very resistant to any sort of change, and that change is desperately needed. And so by coupling these two together, I figured, okay, this is kind of the baseline of my project. I feel like these two can become really powerful pyramids that I can work off of. And so with that, I started off with the education aspect, going to schools, doing presentations. Um, I started off specifically with straws because, one, they're beginning to become a trendy movement um, a couple, a few years ago. And then two, there was lots of alternatives to regular single-use plastic straws, and I had them readily available, like, you know, paper, metal, bamboo, there's even pasta, all sorts of fancy stuff. Anyway, and so after that, I kind of started up the education side of my project first because I thought, okay, let's try to educate as many people as possible so that way I will find out whether the policy is really needed because if everyone, if you can right, tell everyone about these issues and everyone's like, oh yeah, I should change because of that, then that's cool. Um, and ultimately, that wasn't the case. I was probably being very hopeful and I hoped that education could change everyone's mind. Not the case, but um, about a year later, which would be, what is that? That would be about six months from today. I began to switch over to the more policy side, to the more activist side. And fortunately, it just so happened that that's when Bill 40 came into play. And that's our bill to face out a variety of single-use plastics here on Oahu. And so for my more activism policy side of my project, I threw the weight of it behind Bill 40 to try to get passed. Can you talk about what it's like to testify who you're going and meeting with, like, how did you learn about that process? I, I know you said you caught it on the tail end, so you got a little bit of experience and could see other people. But I think something that's so daunting for, for people who haven't been involved in policy and activism in that level, it feels really intimidating. How do you access it? How would you encourage other people to access it? So for me, really, it was, a very, very slow transition. It wasn't like one day you just go up and meet the politicians and all of a sudden, like, 
you're able to, like, do whatever you want. Um, for me, it was slow. I had to figure out, like, first of all, what in the world can I do? I had no idea how to write a bill. I had no idea how to testify. And so that sort of support was brought in by other people. Um, for example, one of my mentors who works for Surfrider now, um, Surfrider Wahoo, she helped me out with like figuring out how some of this works. Um, I've had people teach me how to submit testimony online, which is actually something that anyone can do. You just have to know how to do it. Um, and then how to also craft effective testimony because another thing that I didn't know was that for, say, city council, your testimony is supposed to be within a minute. And after a minute's up, a buzzer goes off. And they're not necessarily going to tell you, shut up and go, but that buzzer is the reminder that, hey, your time is expiring and there are other people who want to testify. And so, yeah, it was just a slow learning curve, um, having friends and mentors teach me things, attending events that were hosted by organizations that are familiar with this kind of policy work. Um, and then just as, as time went on, which it took, what is it now? This has been year three of my entire policy work. Um, as time went on, I began to get a better understanding of how the system works, how um, the kind of influences politicians work on there, who are the stakeholders when it comes to plastics, and what kind of support, or maybe it doesn't have support of the community and figuring that out. So that has definitely been a long journey with a lot of bumps on the road, but it's definitely one that's provided me with a lot of learning experience. And it's useful because being able to interact with your government and make a difference in your government is huge. Yeah, it definitely is. I don't know if you know this about my background, but I helped with um, passing autism insurance legislation and licensure for behavior analysts in the state. And I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was in 2015. Um, and so I learned a lot by just jumping in. And you make some mistakes, and you learn quickly from those mistakes, and you learn a lot about reading people and when to when to talk, how quickly to say something, right? Like you're saying yeah. the one minute. The buzzer is intimidating, even if they're not going to kick you off, you know, the, the podium or there or, or at the table. I agree. And I think I think what's so maybe informative and comforting for people to hear is that it is a little confusing and nerve wracking, but it's possible. It's doable. It gets easier. And then you can achieve great success. I mean, we for us, we passed for me, the autism insurance and licensure, that's huge, you know, mm -hmm. and then being a part of and seeing mayor signed the the plastics ban on Sunday was felt like that same kind of hurrah and the hurrahs sometimes are stretched really far apart <laughs> uh, you get little small wins you know kind of along the way I I just want to reflect for you standing there and being a part of the the bill signing how incredible it was to see you Dyson um, at, at 17 receiving, I think, the first copy of the signed bill, or the, the official one went to, you know, the official agent or officer, and then the mayor turned over and said, this one's for you, Dyson. Like, how did that 
feel? Like, what were your thoughts? And I also saw a lot of your peers um, kind of congratulating you and each other. Like, what was that like for you? I mean, it's hard to find words that describe it, but obviously I was relieved. It's passing legislation, as you probably know, is not an easy thing. It's like, it's like a, what's the analogy? It's like playing that video game that you've been trying to beat for like days and days at a time, and you can't get past this darn level. And then finally, finally you beat it, and you reach the end of that game, and you're like, oh my gosh, I did it. I won. Um, and also, too, it was just sheer thankfulness. Um, ultimately, although I did get the signed copy of the bill, the work that was done to get Bill 40 passed, it was the trailblazers were the people, the quote-unquote old-timers, um, the people who've been doing this for a long time, for decades even, and who really created the path that allowed people like me to follow them later on and to kind of learn exactly what they did and to learn from their mistakes and to also, um, what do you call it, to utilize their successes. And then, of course, the youth movement isn't just one person. All my friends, they've helped me out tremendously. For example, the signature scroll that was unraveled at the hearing, which had over 1,500 signatures from youth all around the Wahoo. That signature scroll and all the signatures on it weren't collected by me. Those signatures were collected by youth from around 18 other schools. And without that signature scroll, it's possible that Bill 40 wouldn't have passed. And so just really one of the things I understood when I received the signed copy of the bill was that I was receiving it not for myself, but for the youth movement that is beginning to grow here in Hawaii. It was a seed that's been kind of just staying, um, what do you call it, inert for a while, but it's beginning to germinate, and you can already see the beginnings of a huge tree coming out of it. I love the way that you talk, and I will just reflect back for you your hum- your humility. One of the things that I that I overheard, I, I met a couple of your peers who were there. Uh, Lucy stands out to me, actually. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things I heard you say after the bill was signed, after everyone had kind of dispersed, was you were, you were giving guidance, if I heard correctly, where you're like, hey, this is great, this is good, this is for all of us, but it's up to us to make sure that it's enforced. And that, you know, the adults do what they say they're going to do. Did I hear that correctly? More or less. You, you, you got the message. <laughs> well, I think that that's incredibly insightful. And my experiences have taught me that that's absolutely the issues, right? I, I have also had that same journey of education and then maybe legislation. And hopefully that's, we don't need anything else for enforcement, you know, uh, we try to avoid litigation. Because you've mentioned already, it's a lot about trying to find the connectivity and the motivation for people. And if it's about convenience, how that's a barrier. So then how do we replace convenience? Do you mind speaking about some of the alternatives that are available uh, for other items outside of straws? Like Because people, I think, 
often they easily say like, well, I can't put my, my soup in a, in a paper bag. And that, um, I mean, that's a little silly, right? So what are some of those other options? Yeah. So while I, I will say beforehand that I'm no expert in all the alternatives that are available, that was definitely carried out by the manufacturers of those items. I can say, like, for example, for your styrofoam clamshells, the ones that your plate lunges come in, instead of having styrofoam, um, those same plate lunches, plate lunches themselves aren't going to change, but the container instead is going to be made out of PLA, um, compostable plastics, and compostable plastics are still going to be allowed because what we're trying to do is now that we have regular petroleum-based plastics out, we have compostable plastics in, and hopefully we can um, have composting facilities on Oahu. And then now because of that, those compostable plastics, rather than just going being burned at H power or, excuse me, being you know, thrown away and dumped into the landfill, are going to produce resources for us. Um, and so, yep, compostables will be available. Um, if you, I, I feel like a lot of people may have seen compostable cups. Um, as well as compostable utensils. And aside from those compostable plastics, obviously the more natural wooden alternatives, um, paper alternatives, will also be around. So there are companies such as utensils that create paper straws as well as wooden um, utensils. Um, I believe sustainable island products distribute a variety of, I guess, more green alternatives, such as those PLAs, um, paper materials, wooden materials. And in terms of quality, I've seen them stand up very well. For example, I know a lot of people are worried about foods that are more extreme on one end, so like really hot, or really cold foods, um, really wet foods. And so for those kinds of stuff, let's say ice cream, there are these paper cups, um, sort of like the regular plastic cups that you would have like ice cream or dipping dots in, but instead they're made out of paper and then the inside and maybe the outside are lined with a PLA um, film. And so because of that, your ice cream doesn't leak. And it holds up very well actually. So I personally have used a lot of these products, have seen them do very well. I know a lot of local businesses here for example, Banan and Umeka Market uses these items as well, and they're thriving businesses. So the alternatives are definitely out there. Um, like I said earlier, I would suggest um, checking out the variety of businesses who operate in these fields, so sustainable item products, utensils. Those are the two I can think of off the top of my head right now, but if I have any more, I'll, yeah, I'll voice them out later. Thank you. And, and speaking about your communication in general and how you push messages out, that's something I wanted to, to comment on and circle back to. You had mentioned having mentors, learning about the process, and kind of, you know, experiencing it. But I, I've been on the receiving end of your emails. Hey, don't forget to get this out there. Hey, get, get past that hearing. Make sure you say thanks to your legislators. And it was really reminiscent um, of some of of the experiences I had when we're trying to get like all the members of our state chapter involved, your messages were always really positive. They were, they were informative, but they were also relatively short. And 
on the re- being on the receiving end of hundreds of emails a day, <laughs> yours constantly stood out to me because I knew it was important. I knew I could read it quickly, and you always hyperlinked to what I either needed to learn about or the action item. That's incredible. That, I think, is uh, a skill set that you have that uh, when other people look to you for, hey, Dyson, teach me these things, I want to make sure that you realize that you've, you've really, I think, perfected the art of that part of communication with, with getting people involved. You know, from a behavioral standpoint, keep it short, keep it simple, keep it doable, and give them that action item, and then thank them for doing it. How how do you manage to create that time, or how much time does it take for you to prepare those kinds of messages? Um, well, first of all, thanks for saying that. I have never heard anyone say that they've been that convenient. I've always been worried that I've been spamming people's inboxes by sending those emails. So that's good to know. In terms of preparing them, by now, they usually take me under 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes at most. Um, when I first started writing them, it probably took me like an hour to try to condense the email. But at this point, it's become second nature. It's kind of like riding a bicycle, where the first time you do it, it's kind of wobbly. You're still trying to figure out, okay, like what exactly do I have to do to maintain this balance? Same thing with the emails. It started out kind of like, ooh, this doesn't look that great. What exactly can I cut out to make it shorter? Um, but after, you know, sending multiple emails, practicing over and over again, because you're not the only person who gets hundreds of emails in their inbox, I get tons of emails too, so I understand exactly what people feel like when they look at an email and they're like, ugh, I don't want any more emails, I'm done. And I try to put those feelings into my emails to keep them as short and concise as possible. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you you thought about being on the receiving end of those messages, which um, really helps in trying to achieve behavior change when we look at the perspective of others and the people we're trying to to be involved with. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just in preparation for the podcast today and make sure I was up to date on you, I was looking at some of your um, accolades. You've received grants and awards and Bills have been, you know, given to you in your honor for the work that the youth are doing. Uh, you've been on the cover of magazines. I mean, uh, do you want to share? Can you share some of those um, experiences with us as well? Yeah, sure. So I would say that um, for grants and whatnot, um, a lot of the award money is to be able to fuel the work that I do because um, ultimately a lot of what I do involves traveling which I love and hate at the same time. I love going to new places, but then I'm like, dang it, I'm on a jet plane, so it's, you know, emitting tons and tons of carbon. But anyway, yeah, um, <laughs> it's definitely important to, yeah, continue to feel the work that I do. And then really the awards, what they've meant to me is just kind of a reminder of not only the fact that, okay, you if what I'm doing is being taken positively by the community, that's a good thing. Um, But then also, too, just, like, what exactly is out there? It's not all doom and gloom. It's not all negative things. There's a lot of positive things out there, and there are a lot of people who are willing and more than happy to celebrate those kinds of things that happen. And so just having that positive reminder has always been nice. That's wonderful. Yeah, you know, if... If we believe the doom and gloom, then we should just 
you know, hang up our hats and sit down and, and just sort of try to make the best of what's left. But I think if we look at what we know to be true, you change one habit in your day, it can change your life. You as one person change one behavior, can change the next person and other behaviors. When I first started down the path of looking at straws, I mean, I just, I always like to say it's not about straws and it never was, <laughs> um, but it was because it was one of the items I was picking up the most on the beaches here on the North Shore where I lived. And I thought to myself, like, literally one day I thought, I'm picking all this up. I'm going to, what am I going to do with it? I mean, I mean, I'm taking it out of the ocean, but I'm going to go put it in a trash can. And then I thought, oh, gosh, like, what if I didn't need to use these items? Now, I'm sure that, that everyone has had that thought, but it was, it was that plus the beach plus, you know, all of the moment where it just clicked. And I thought, I've got to do something, right? Like, I, I have to do something. I have to do more than what I'm doing. And it felt really overwhelming. Like, how am I going to change every single behavior? And so I said, just pick one thing. And I really thought, I really, really thought eliminating straws was going to be an easy behavior to change. And um, by taking a behavior analytic view at it, I learned, like, no behavior is easy to change. It all takes thought and, and practice and rewiring and then it's not so hard to maintain and it becomes easier to pick the next one I think you know that momentum can be really helpful for people and when like for example um, I don't use paper towels I haven't used paper towels in years now that's not something I ever thought of or dryer sheets or spray bottles you know different areas where people can make those those changes and for some people it's not straws you know maybe they have a reason for using them fine but my uh, my conversation started shifting around like what we could do. And when you change that conversation or you take that perspective, you start finding really creative and innovative people. So I connect with what you're saying about finding those people who are willing to help and to celebrate. That's incredible. So my I guess one of my last questions for you is what's next? You're going to be graduating, right, <laughs> in the near yep. future? I so. over. Yeah, I mean, which, if they ever tell you it's the best time of your life, it's not. It's the best is yet to come, especially if you keep, you know, helping to create a brighter future. But what is next on your horizon, Dyson? I mean, immediately afterwards is celebrating the holidays. I need to take a break from work. But um, so, like, action items, the cool stuff that's coming up. We definitely, like I mentioned before, um, composting is on the list. Now that we have one half of the puzzle with the compostable plastics, now we need the other half with the actual composting facility. And so that will be something for those of you living on Oahu to keep your eyes out on. And another thing is moving on from just plastic pollution, because obviously plastic pollution is a serious issue. It's global effect pretty much anyone, because very plastics aren't just littering our beaches, they litter forests and land. But ultimately, solving plastic pollution isn't going to solve the world's problems. And I believe one of the biggest problems that we face globally is climate change, because climate change, right, it's, you see it on the news all the time, it affects globally, locally, nationally, pretty much everyone is affected by climate change one way or another, whether it be us in Hawaii having less trade winds, or Australia getting demolished by wildfires. And so moving on from just plastics, I'm hoping to really tackle the issue of climate change. And part of what I've done to do that is to join local organizations that do that. 
But then, of course, there's other things that need to be done. Um, education and activism are both part of them. And so not only for those living on Oahu or Hawaii, but for those of you living nationally or internationally, keep your eyes out because there will definitely be lots of interesting things coming up regarding climate change, not just climate strikes um, or individuals, but systematic change, things that change how we think, how we operate, and understanding that what we're doing right now, emitting fossil fuels, allowing these massive corporations to continue digging up these fossil fuels is not going to last us much longer, and we can't do this forever. So, fun stuff coming up. Love the idea and hearing that you're going to start with taking a break, though, because, woof, that is a lot coming up um, for you and for everyone. (laughs) Um, In our field, Dyson, we call that a post-reinforcement pause. So, basically, you've worked, you work, you work, you work, and now you get to just chill. I also want to say congratulations on finishing your finals this week. Um, I <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I know that, wow, you couldn't have had, a, you know, it's, it's a lot on your plate, and you are now on the, on the uh, hopefully the other side and the relaxing side, and you're going to get to enjoy the holidays. Before we finish the podcast today, is there anything else that you'd like to share, add, say, plug, any links, any information? Feel free to do that as well. Yeah, sure. So for anyone who's interested in keeping tab with the work that I do, you can follow my project on Instagram or Facebook. Um, If you search up Project Ocean Hawaii on either one of those social media um, websites, my project should pop up. And really, it'll just keep you up to date with what's going on. Um, There's a lot of things that I do, and I try to collect them under the name of my project. That way, there's one place that people can just kind of follow what I do, like a blog, sort of. And so, yeah, that's really the last plug that I have for this. Well, Dyson, I have a page on my website on behaviorbabe.com, sustainability initiatives, links, people to pay attention to. If you, if you, you know, if you want to talk about that, or if you don't mind, I'd love to add links to your project, uh, Project Ocean, and the work that you're doing. So other people who listen to the show can find you as well. I'd be happy to do that. I want to thank you so much for taking your time on a Saturday <laughs> to meet with me and to, to share your ideas and experiences with our listeners. Really appreciate you, Dyson. Yeah, thank you so much, Amanda. This was fun. Definitely enjoy being able to talk about yeah the kind of stuff that's going on because we live in exciting times. We do. We live in exciting times. And for me, I have to say, one of the biggest reinforcers um, I came into contact with on Sunday was seeing people younger than me who are passionate, who are willing and wanting to do something, because I don't know if I'm yet quite yet the old timers, or maybe I am. I'm falling. I, I, I can't. I don't know anymore, like where generations starting in. But it's this idea that whenever you feel hopeless, seeing a wave of people who are younger and more energetic than you brings a lot of hope. So it's exciting times with hope. And so thanks. Thank you so much for being a part and a symbol of that hope, Dyson. Absolutely. And even better, that hope's being followed up with action. (laughs) And then we'll keep this cycle going. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And for anyone who wants to check out that page, it's sustainability page at www.behaviorbabe.com. Thank you.